Last Sunday, Han blessed us with a timely message from the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is our King who rescues us from our greed and releases our generosity to each other. It was a timely call for us to recognize our jubilee in Christ and in time for Christmas. Truly, we are blessed as a God's children. And today, we, as we celebrate the Lord's birthday, I want us to learn further about the kingship of our Lord in the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, once again, we find that Jesus is not just a king, but the king of kings and the Lord of the lords for everyone in every age. In Christ, we find God's love that comforts us more than anything, more than any material blessings in this world. He is truly the gift that keeps giving and blessing that keeps enriching us. So let's turn to our text today, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, and then let's read the passage responsibly. So brother is going to read a, read a first verse and the sister's following verse. Seventh verse, the key verse of the text, we read together. So brothers, we go here first. The birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And she gave her birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In this story, Luke tells about the nativity uh, account of Jesus with the two main movements. One is a big movement and the other one is a small, small movement. Big movement is worldwide travel that caused by King's Attic, the Emperor Caesar Augustus Attic. And the second movement is a small movement, it's a family trip to their uh, hometown. So this is a global travel, I mean Attic, and then a private family trip are interwoven, intertwined, in the birth story of our King and Savior, and we will look at the first movement about the King's Attic. The two, two key words in today's text is the first one is a census. It's a census of Caesar Augustus. And we need to know a little bit about Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was a grandnephew of Julius Caesar, later became an adopted son and became an heir of a throne. His original name was uh, uh, Gaius Octavian. 
Gaius Octavian. Indeed, he was not an ordinary ruler. He was the emperor that all other succeeding Roman emperors emulate to be. And we need to know a little bit about the Caesar Augustus because he is emperor of emperors. Why? After the Julius Caesar was assassinated, the Roman Empire thrown into the political civil, uh, politi uh, uh, civil war. That civil war lasted over 15 years. Can you imagine that the you know, whole world engaged in the war for 15 years? And the three different you know, uh, uh, people were fighting. The one was uh, General Pompey, and the other one, uh, Pompeius, and the other one was the uh, Mark Anthony with uh, Egyptian Queen Cleopatra, the widow of uh, Julius Caesar, and then Octavian. And then finally it was Octavian who became a victor, and he controlled the empire with an iron fist. That he was the first emperor in Roman history was called divine or Augustus. Caesar Augustus. The Augustus is not a name, it's a title. It's like a Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, Jesus the Savior. So Caesar Augustus simply means a divine emperor. And the Romans used to call their emperors divine or God when they die. You know, it's a Greco-Roman idea. When famous people die, heroes die, they become a god and then you know shine in the in, in the in the star as a star in the uh, in the sky. But he political power and military strength was so great, Roman Senate, who even challenged the authority of Julius Caesar, they bowed before him and then called him God while he was alive and gave him, gave him a title of Caesar Divine or Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. He was so powerful that Asia Minor, on today's Turkey, they adopted his birthday, which was September 23rd, as the first day of the new year. You know, ancient people know how to brown nose, not just, uh, you know, today's politicians. So they say, your birthday is a birthday, I mean, new, first day of a new year for us. And they called him actually savior of the world. And when they called him a god, actually Caesar Augustus, quote unquote, humbly declined and said that I'm not God. Julius Caesar is God. I'm just son of God. <laughs> That's what he called himself. So he humbly demoted himself. I'm a son of God. And this son of God, he totally calmed down the world, the Roman Empire, after 15 years of a civil war, and he ruled for the next 40 years. And Romans called this time Pax Romana, or Roman peace. And the Luke intentionally, in this passage, bring the Caesar Augustus to compare his reign with the reign of Christ. While Caesar Augustus or Octavian Caesar brought a political peace by his military power and might, 
Christ brought the true peace through his mercy and grace and ultimately sacrifice. And Luke was telling us, the real place of honor is not a Rome, it's a Bethlehem. True power didn't come from Caesar Augustus, but from incarnate God. It is not the Rome that matters to us, but it's a Bethlehem that really matters to all of us. That's what Luke was studying, the nativity story of Christ. And why Bethlehem matters? According to Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, 700 years before Christ was born, God sent a prophet named Micah, and this is what Micah said. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule or be a ruler over Israel, whose origin are from, the, from old, from ancient times. Seven years before birth of Christ, God sent a promise that Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. By the way, do you know anyone whose birth and death was predicted 700 years before that person was born? Actually, Jesus' death was predicted in detail in Psalm 22. When you go home, check it out, Psalm 22. A thousand years before it happened. Do you know anybody whose birth and death was predicted way, way, way before? I was a Buddhist before I became a Christian. So I know a little bit about the birth of a Buddha. When Buddha was born, uh, somebody came to Buddha's father, king, and gave a prophecy. Say, your son either be great king or a holy man. If he lives in palace, he will be greater king, you know, great king like you. But if he leaves a palace, he will be a holy man. And later, you know, so Buddha's father, the, you know, the father of, a, you know, the prince of Watma, tried to keep him in, you know, in the palace, and then he had a cabin fever and get out, and then he saw the suffering people, and that's how Buddha left the palace and became a whatever he liked. But that was about it. How about Confucius? Was there ever prophecy or prediction? about their birth and their death. You know, Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is like a channel of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. We have a saying that his story is literally his story or God's story. You know, Caesar Augustus, he thought he was invincible. And he is a ruler of all. But in reality, he was just an instrument serving God's redemptive purpose. And through, you know, unwittingly, he serves God's fulfillment of his story in Christ. And that's what Luke trying to point it out. Now, the main point of today's story is the second part, the small movement. So today, just like many, many people in the Roman Empire, Jesus and his family, his parents, they are, they are traveling. They are, they are traveling miles from uh, Nazareth or Galilee to Bethlehem 
It's uh, close to 100 miles. It probably took uh, two, three, four days. We don't know how well you know, Mary worked, uh, walked. Some people think that uh, Mary was on donkey. That is a later depiction. Most likely, they walked all the way. Now, here Luke turns from universal setting to particular setting. And the here, about the uh, crisis of being born in Bethlehem. And later in Bethlehem, he was born in the uh, in, uh, in inn. And the, even in, he was uh, born in a stable of animals. Now, our American Christian writer named uh, Frederick Buchner, he said, incarnation is the universal cosmic joke of a creator who came among us in diapers. That's what Frederick Buchner said. And his point is this. If you don't feel scandalized by Christ's birth, especially in this small town of Bethlehem, and in a, such a destitute condition, you don't realize the seriousness of this event. So what's the seriousness of this event? Verse 7, the key, key word today, she gave her birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In Greek text, actually it said there is a no uh, place for the guest room. That's how actual Greek text is. And the word for the place is topos, from which we have English word topograph, topography, right? Topography. So there is not just room, no place, no space for them. What does it mean there was no place or no room in the guest area for this expecting a mom? It actually means it's not like uh, it was crowded and it was, there was, you know, everything was booked. It simply means Joseph and Mary had not much money. They were dirt poor. They didn't have enough money to buy a room for first time mother who is in labor. That's what it means. That means no room. I mean, if you you know, even if you are oh, speaking about this a particular inn, some translation called inn, many scholars, New Testament scholars think that this is not actually inn or hotel in today's sense. Because uh, there was a different Greek word for inn, which later comes out in Luke chapter 10. You know, that the story of a parable of a good Samaritan, the good Samaritan rescued uh, you know, the injured traveler and they took him to the inn. That word in is a more professional term. Here, the guest room is a, like a lodging area. This is an extra space kind of area. So scholars think that this is not a professional in nor because Bethlehem is not a big town. There's, there's no reason people to go to Bethlehem other than you know, a case like this. So probably somebody in, who owns a little big house and all of a sudden people are coming to register, respond to the emperor's edict. 
And it became a business. And people have to stay. And they're charging money. It's like a crude form of Airbnb in the first century in Palestine. And he, I mean, in this story, the probably the happiest person is the, the innkeeper or this, uh, you know, Airbnb owner. Can you imagine people have to stay and, you know, and he, this, all of a sudden, this, you know, extra income, hustle, bustle, and the people are in there. I'll, you know, oh, he gave you how much? 100, I'll give you $300 for the master bedroom. No, I'll give you $500, you know. Before seminary, I worked uh, two months at the uh, very fancy uh, uh, burger joint in uh, north of Berkeley, in front of a Claremont Hotel. This is a very, very uh, nice uh, classical hotel. And uh, my job was uh, uh, frying. I was in charge of frying. And at that gourmet burger joint, we fry uh, 10 different vegetables. So not just the French fries, I artichoke hard, you name it. I fried a lot of vegetables. And the lunchtime, just an hour and a half, is a literally inferno or purgatory. Because that hour and a half, you don't think anything but, all right, which fries in first, and then you just think about nothing but all of the fries that you receive. Okay, that hour and a half is crazy. But you know what's the worst, the worst than that? Once in a while, the Claremont Hotel has a business conference, and there are more than two, three times a guest coming on their lunchtime. And lunchtime work lasts like a two and a half, you know, three hours, double the time. And then during the time, even though people knew that I'm going to seminary, nobody cared. We all cursed. <laughs> we all cursed. F word, S word, you name it, all the words. I, know, I usually curse in Spanish, so I curse my Spanish word comes out. Only one who was a humming is an owner. He's a charging of, you know, he's actually very nice, you know, so, you know. And afterward, oh, free drink today. You know, that's all you get, free, you guys can have a free drink. Yeah. Pick any, any drink you want. That cheap Korean you know, owner, but anyway. <laughs> And uh, this, this innkeeper was so, in his uh, hustle and bustle, he doesn't have a compassion for one small family, you know, a first-time mother. And if I later interview Joseph in heaven, I bet Joseph said this would be probably the hardest time, one of the hardest time in his life. I don't know which one is the worst when he found out Mary was pregnant, or this time. Because at least Mary was pregnant, later God revealed to him dream that it was God's work. So he is into God's, so, so he took it. All right, this is a miracle. I'm part of the miracle. And he came all the way here. And look, your wife is giving birth to a child, and then you don't have money to even find a small room or kitchen room to have a safe you know, birth. If you're a husband and to be father, how do you feel? I bet this is a really, really difficult time for Joseph. Only thing that I can think of that, that expresses actually Joseph's you know, uh, uh, heart this moment is that there is a poem called The Infant Sorrow uh, composed by William Blake in 
1794. And I want us to uh, read that poem because William Blake was an English poet who was against the Industrial Revolution and all those uh, social economic injustice that pours in the world. So he wrote this poem called The Infant Sorrow. And this sorrow, this poem goes, I think Joseph probably understands this better than even William Blake. The poem goes like this. My mother groaned, and my, mother, my father wept. Into dangerous world I leapt. Helpless, naked, piping loud, like a fiend hid in the cloud. Struggling my father's hand, striving against my swaddling band. Bound and weary, I thought best to suck upon my mother's breast. Of course, laboring mother groaned, but this is a more than groaning. Father wept. Why does a father wept? Because, you know, especially industrial time, a lot of poor peasants move into big city and it's a slum. A lot of women die during the labor. So as a husband is worried about wife and into the dangerous world that the baby is, the baby is born, back then a lot of children were doing uh, child labors in the factory or they were, some of them went into indentured servanthood, practically slavery. So there's not much waiting for this family. And that's why the William Blake said, this is infant sorrow. And the whole family is weeping. And I think this is what Joseph, close to what Joseph was going through. And if you're Joseph, how do you feel? You know, God said, this is, you know, this, your wife is bringing Messiah. And Joseph said, where is God in this? Those of us know the story. How come God could send the Magi a little earlier? We heard last week the Magi brought the gold and myrrhs and then you know, incense, all the expensive, you know. The Christmas star couldn't appear a little earlier or guide them a little bit faster. I mean, if not a gold, then I mean, can he reveal the dream to the innkeeper that uh, here is a great guest among you? Shepherds came later after baby was born. Can they come a little earlier and then give, you know, oh, take one of our sheep and then sheep, you know, with a sheep they can pay the room. Joseph and Mary, when they found there's no room in the inn, it simply means they were extremely poor. We're not talking about regular poverty that we experience from time to time. You know, regular uh, poverty is that a poverty brings an inconvenience. You cannot fly into the whatever fancy class. You just you fly the uh, southwest. Those kind of a poverty, regular <laughs> poverty, you know. But we are talking about extreme poverty. In this case, this is the extreme poverty bring us shame and pain. And you know what? Such a pain and shame is utterly lonely. 
Have you ever been such a poor, extremely poor? I know a pastor uh, who is now serving a church in the uh, North Carolina, and uh, he used to uh, study at DTS. And I, you know, he, he and I, Pastor Choi and I, became a good friends. They invited me to his church to do a, uh, speak several times, and uh, so we get to know each other better. And he was telling me that uh, anytime he sees McDonald's, a thought comes his, you know. His mind that uh, while he was studying Dallas Theological Seminary 35 years ago in Dallas, he was so financially strict that he drove away from the McDonald's because his daughters want to go to McDonald's. And he doesn't have money to pay for that whatever the small menu. So he tried to drive away from McDonald's. Because when daughters ask, can I? Daddy, can you buy me whatever, the uh, vanilla cone? He doesn't have the money to pay for it. So he intentionally drove around. We are talking about the, those kind of extreme poor. God intentionally allowed his son to be born. Extremely poor family. Now, question is why? Why did that? Why did that? God is telling us, actually through Christ, that it's now social economic status matters to God. Even if you are born extreme poverty, if you have a strong relationship with God, you can do great things more than anybody, better than anybody. Christ is an example that God's grace and mercy make us actually transcend our social, economic, human background. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was involved in the Hitler's removal from office, assassination, and later was imprisoned. In, and then killed by uh, SS Gestapo. While he was in prison, he, he, he wrote as a reflection on Christmas in this way. Only the humbly believe him and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair. He takes what is a little lowly and makes it marvelous. And that is the wonder of all wonders that God loves lowly. God is not ashamed of a lowliness of a human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instrument and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak and broken. Do you feel lonely? Do you feel lost? Do you feel excluded? Do you feel uncared? Do you feel even misunderstood? Today, God is calling you to come to Bethlehem and find Christ. And there you will see the meaning of Emmanuel. God is with us 
in the deepest sense of the word. Athanasius' early church father, on his book on incarnation, he says similar thing, that God did not come to make a display, he did not, but he came to heal and teach suffering men. God did not come to just dazzle his beholders and disappear. Rather, God came and became one of us and revealed his strength in us, which is, which comes in the form of a weakness. So, Christ intentionally born and all chose the extreme poverty to show us sometimes God's rich blessings comes in the form of our poverty. God's strength comes to us in the form of an avenue of a weakness. And there we find a deeper fellowship with God. Even though when you feel, when you feel lonely and abundant and nobody cares, that other moment you are so close to God. When nobody understands you, when nobody sympathizes you, with you, you can believe there is a manual who experienced everything that we go through. He doesn't have to. He chose to show us he cared for you and me. Now, the second key word and the most important key word in today's text is manger, where baby Jesus was laid. A biblical scholar named uh, Ray, uh, Raymond Brown, who wrote a, 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 this is a seminal book on the birth of Christ, he said this, Curiously, Luke seems to more interested in telling his audience where Mary laid a newborn baby. He carefully, he is careful to report that Jesus was a swaddle and they laid in a manger because of lack of space at the lodging. If you look at the verse you know, 6 and 7, whole thing that Luke trying to convey focused on manger. That's why he said there was no space. No guest room in the place, and they have to find that there's a feed box for animal. That's the only available space for this newborn. So he was focusing on manger. He didn't simply say Jesus was born in Bethlehem, fulfilled the God's prophecy that was given through the prophet Micah 700 years. He doesn't go just like a fact. He intentionally go why Jesus has to lay in manger. And what's the big deal about manger? If you look at the uh, later Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, 53, Luke brings back this expression that they wrapped Jesus in the band of clothes and laid him in a manger. So Luke 23:53. if you compare, look at that. Wrapped Jesus' body in a linen cloth laid him in a tomb. So what is it? Why is it Luke was focusing on manger? What is he seeing in the manger? He saw the redemptive death and burial of Christ. Just the fact that Christ was wrapped and the lady in a manger is a telltale sign of later Christ will be crucified. They took him down. They wrapped him and they laid him in a cave, another cave. 
By the way, this stable, they, scholars think it's a cave. That's where they, they keep the animal. So he was born in cave of animals, and he was buried in a cave of a well, rich man. Look so cross in the crib of Christ. That's why he was focusing on manger. And that's what Christmas is about. Jesus was born to die for you and me. He is a savior king who is sacrificing all his being to make us fully alive in God. Let me conclude today's message with a story of a silent night. This song is probably the most famous Christmas carol. Actually, United Nations, uh, UNESCO, it was adopted, it was selected as a cultural you know, heritage and uh, intellectual you know, treasure of humanity. This silent night was composed, uh, it was actually the lyrics came from uh, Austrian Roman Catholic father named Joseph Moore. And uh, Joseph Moore, he, he had a hard time in life. He was third child of a single mother. His father, or his father abandoned him because so poor, and he has to serve as a mercenary. You know, Swiss produced a lot of mercenary. Today, the Swiss is a beautiful, rich country, but uh, in you know, while ago, in a it's a very poor place. There's not much to do. So a lot of Swiss men, strong you know, mountain men, they became a mercenaries. And even today, the Vatican Guard is actually Swiss Guard because they are known for fighting for war for money. Joseph Moore's, Moore's father was a mercenary and an abundant family. Thank God he has a musical gift. And the church music, music director found it, and actually priest adopted him and supported him. Later he became a pastor. And one day in his church, there was a Christmas you know, a carol musical team came, just like you know, we have today, unexpectedly, the Uganda choirs, children you know, choirs are here. So we'll actually hear from them during the uh, our, during our announcement time. But when the, uh, this uh, carol, uh, carol, Christmas carol and musical team came from Vienna, the church organ was broken. So they couldn't perform well. It was a last minute, very unorganized performance. And then Joseph, as a music pastor, he felt really bad. He felt that uh, I failed. And then he was going home. And uh, as he walking uh, away from the uh, town, and uh, by the way, he was a pastor of Obendorf, which is a nearby town of Salzburg, Sound of Music, home of uh, Mozart, birthplace of Mozart. And there, in the from hill, he saw his town. It's a small Swiss town, I mean Austrian town, and there he remembers the poem he wrote before. That is a words of the lyrics of a silent night. So he felt, oh, I need to make a carol out of this. So he went to his organist named Franz Gruber and gave him the poem he wrote a few years ago 
and by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Franz Gruber came with this beautiful melody within a day, and that's how Silent Night, Holy Night was born. And when they performed, once again, organ was broken, so they performed with a guitar. And it was not known until few people nearby town liked it and the word spread and eventually it became the most popular carol. Now, I want, we all know Silent Night, Holy Night, right? What's the meaning of a Silent Night, Holy Night? Why Silent Night is a Holy Night? It actually comes from Habakkuk 2.20. Habakkuk 2.20, the prophet said, The Lord is in holy place. Let the earth be silent before him. The Lord is in the holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Scholars believe that when God comes to temple, God comes to temple for sure once a year. When is the time? It's a day of atonement called the Yom Kippur. On the day of atonement, Israelites believe God is in holy of holy. That's why the high priest go to holy of holy once a year. But he goes in what form? Very slowly tread into holy of holy because he's representing sin of the, his people before holy God. And some of them don't come back alive if they're not prepared well. So the priests tie the rope with the bells around the rope. And then as long as the bell is ringing, he's alive. Some of them, I guess, they don't come. Yeah. And then he tread, and everyone is a silent, quiet, because you are in the presence of the Holy God. And there, the priest whisper, only once a year in Israel's history, the holy, self-revealed name of God Joseph Moore, he believed that night of Jesus' birth must be silent because it's all the holy night. Because this is a night that God came, not in the just a holy temple, in a manger, in the heart of everyone, to give us God's eternal peace and forgiveness and grace. It's a holy night. That's why it's a silent night. Today, we don't say rarely we see a silence in Christmas. Christmas means noisy. People, you know, in the malls, in the houses, children, you know, everywhere we hear cacophony of noises. But Bible said, when Holy God is with us, we have to be silent. And we have to really ask, God, come into my heart. Though it might be wretched like a manger, but your love can make it wonderful. Just as a Christ made a manger, sign of a God's utter grace and peace to all of us, God can make my heart and your heart 
and our life a wonder of his love and grace. Let's pray.